you don't learn about this kind of technology without loving the shit out of it. Yeah. Last night I was on with uh, our director of business operations. We're doing some market research till literally like 930 watching this new show is super pumped. The Uber. Uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? Yeah. yeah, man, He's a great actor. Obviously, they've dramatized and elevated this Uber story quite a bit, but I was watching last night and yeah. you know, he there's this this really wild moment when he looks around the office and he's just everybody's saying that they can't do something. He's like, none of you are super pumped. <laughs> like, <laughs> like none Is of Is that you? Are you walking around the office with in a sleeveless yeah. shirt going, be super pumped? assets right. alongside of you know accredited investors um, and we're using blockchain technology to do it in a unique and more efficient way you know be the bridge between the traditional assets into the web3 you know and blockchain environment you know a big part of your job is helping people wrap their minds around what the blockchain is there's a there's a lot of yada 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 it's like you know create this account trust us to help bring you into this world that or they ordinarily accredited investors are only privy to. I mean, you're going to have first adopters and that's going to be great, but your long-term growth plans have to involve penetration into a much more, maybe a, not a less informed, but a, a, you know, a more everyman retail investor who's going to want to get involved in this. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's our primary target. And with that in mind, um, I wanted to tell you, I'm, I'm seeing parallels here to tell you a little bit about me because in a previous life, Right around the turn of the millennium, I, I was part of a day trading company. You know, day trading was blowing up and that was part of Web 2, but people were just catching on to the democratization of the fact that you didn't need a broker to place trades for you. And our job, we, we were the learning department. We wanted to distinguish ourselves from all of the other day traders by saying, you don't just come in here and expect to print money. You got to learn what the hell you're doing. I do think that there's an imperative here as well on your side as, as an instructor. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of the education side, but I've learned really fast that some people want to go into the weeds, but other people just need to know that there is something different on the back end and it's better. And here's why, generally, you know, it's it becomes, do my eyes glass over? Am I going to stop listening to you halfway through your explanation? Or am I going to take what I need from it quickly and, and we get on to the, the point kind of thing? Exactly. Um, and this is your opportunity to showcase your knee buckling charisma in this place <laughs> to show people oh, yeah. that you're the person to learn from because you know the most about it and you know where this app can go and how far it can penetrate and how much revenue you can get in this market because there's a road ahead to convince a lot of people that this is a reputable thing to invest in and not just, you know, beanie babies all over again. Well, and that's already happening. Beanie babies all over again is happening everywhere right now. Uh, right. The collectibles market, the NFT market, the masterworks, all these companies, they're coming out of nowhere and there's value. They're creating value. And actually what they are doing to an illiquid asset class is the same thing that we are doing to a different illiquid asset class. So you're born in Michigan. So what brought you to Tennessee? Uh, we moved down to Tennessee when I was like eight. Oh, because you had eight full years in the mitten. Good for you. So yeah. at least you've got a, a good uh, appreciation for good beer and cold winters. 
<laughs> I don't know if I was drinking beer at eight years old, but you know, uh, it, <laughs> well, it, you know, it's in great. Yeah. They just... <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So you got eight cold winters and then you figured, all right, let's head down South. Yeah. I mean, look, my dad was uh, hired in as a C level of a bunch of different companies to more or less fix them. You know, you look at a company and you say, is it, is it worth saving or can we grow this company to the next level? Um, so it's basically and, bar rescue for companies. Yeah, sort of. Uh, <laughs> so he did that for quite a few big companies over the years, uh, started building his own companies. And that, that's what brought us down to you know Chattanooga. Uh, I then went to college up near Nashville and then continued to stay in Nashville. But I had some career items that brought me to both LA and New York since before the 2008 crisis. So it's it, this whole area. I don't know what what the government does here specifically to keep that growth moving forward. But I think it has something to do with their uh, no income tax in Tennessee. <laughs> uh, that's probably a, a nice piece that keeps people a- attracted to here. That's an incentive um, for sure. Have you said yeah. you noticed that? I mean, friends of mine who live in central Tennessee are just kind of gobsmacked by how popular and huge Nashville has become over the past 20 years. Yeah. I mean, look, Nashville has been growing so rapidly that I live here and I still find new places every day. Uh, and we are very active. We go out, we hit, you know, a bunch of different food spots. That's one of the things that we do all the time. And, you know, we're not a, a New York or an LA food scene yet. Uh, not San Francisco food scene yet, but, you know, there's a lot of restaurants here that are definitely rivaling that. And I think that's a good indicator of growth as well as just seeing what kind of a uh, food scene you've got in a, in a, in a city. So. Well, you've got a bright future in the Nashville Chamber of Commerce if you choose that route, by all means. Once, uh, <laughs> if you if you en- once once you en- uh, engineer an exit for a choir, you definitely have a a panoply of options as a as an ambassador for your town. Well, um, I mean, we're we're building a tech company, a financial technology company in Nashville, and you know we we have choices to build that anywhere in the country or outside of the country, and you know I chose here for. A number of reasons. I mean, this is a rapidly growing town. Oracle is moving here, uh, main office. Amazon's moving a main o- a headquarters here. Facebook put in a, a deal. Spotify and Apple Music are both putting things here. Obviously, there's a big music scene in Nashville, but the technology scene in general has grown really rapidly. One of our top gross domestic products of the state is actually finance. It's a really great state to be in, in general, definitely underserved, but now we're getting such growth that it's kind of a you know, the streets are getting a little more congested, but that's also exciting. Well, that's interesting that Nashville's getting more of a rep as a financial hub as well. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, look, Alliance Bernstein, uh, UBS, JP Morgan, a bunch of these bigger, you know, asset managers and companies are all based here. Uh, and most of them are also looking into, you know, the digital financial space as well. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, kind of cool to be on the ground floor in a state like this, uh, where there is a lot of movement from, some of the major hubs into a place like this as well. Well, speaking about a lot of movement into a major new hub, you are listening to episode 239 of the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started, there is also a brief disclaimer I'd like to read. This is just a portion of it. You can find the full disclaimer on our podcast's website at successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. 
but it's important for you to know that KiwiTech is not acting as a broker dealer or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. And again, if you enjoyed that mouthful, please check out the full disclaimer at successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. I am your host, Doug French, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about Web3 and blockchain. And yes, this is important. This is the future of so many things. And in particular, comprises two of my favorite verbs, acquire and invest. We're talking to Brian Harstein, who is the founder and CEO of Acquire Invest, and particularly the Acquire app, which is poised to open up investment opportunities to retail investors and accredited investors alike. Anyway, Brian, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming along. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here and dig in on some Web3 uh, blockchain stuff. Let's do it. Let's get our fingers dirty and talk about Web3. You know, Web2 is just to put simply is the internet of information. Uh, and that provided us a lot of commerce opportunities as well. And Web3 is the internet of value. And it does provide trustless interactions, something that you'll read about a bunch if you don't already know uh, when you're diving into blockchain. Trustless interactions as in if I'm sending you money and I don't know you, how can I trust that you know, that exchange is going to be done properly, or I'm going to get what I'm paying for or whatever the interaction is. And blockchain has provided a solution to, you know, something that, a little more complex, the Byzantine emperor's problem. You can check that out, you know, anywhere online, <laughs> if you really want to dive deep. But, We're going to uh, have a bunch of really Googleable stuff that we'll put in the show notes because it's, it's important that you do your research if you're going to keep up. So, yeah, I mean, essentially, it's it's a better way to do stocks, bonds, transactions, currencies, and the regulators and, you know, just consumers are trying to keep up with everything that you can do with blockchain technology. It's really, a, it's really an exciting space, and it is so much better than previous technologies, and it's why it's talked about so frequently. You know, you can use it for healthcare, identity, logistics, uh, personally identifiable information. Some people say that Facebook shouldn't be monetizing their information and that they should benefit from that. And blockchain is one of the ways that people are starting to benefit from the monetization of their own online identity, online information that these companies do collect. So it's very interesting to see all the different use cases. We specifically are focused on something more tangible, a little bit easier to understand, just investments specifically investments into things that I don't believe most people have had, had access to before. And I'm getting a vibe too off of you. I think there's a bearing that a CEO needs to have, I think, in terms of just an appreciation for solving problems. Is it fair to say you got that from your dad? I mean, your dad was a fixer. Your dad went in and solved problems. How much of that do you think rubbed off on you as a kid? Yeah, I you know I I don't know how much of it comes from him. I'm sure a good amount for sure. If I wanted a scooter when I was I don't know six years old, I probably had to build a business plan. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, here's here's why the scooter will pay off in the long run. But no, I honestly I think I just 
have always gravitated toward cha- towards challenges. You know, I played golf growing up competitively, you know, a little bit in college, mostly on the junior leagues. And that was a very challenging environment. You're out there by yourself, pushing yourself to be better playing against the course, not necessarily always the, uh, the people next to you. And the course is a problem. That's just one kind of element. I'm always tr- attracted to challenges and I don't know why. Well, it's interesting you're attracted to golf. I mean, I'm right there with you. I love golf. I love the challenges of golf. I love the metaphors of golf. I love the whole idea of keeping your head down and following through on your swing because the irony is the sooner you look up to see where your ball's going, the more likely it's going someplace bad. Um, You have to just trust the process and you have to recognize that you're only as good as your last shot. It's kind of like a real-time evaluation of your skills because past performance has nothing to do with what's about to come and you can still salvage around. You can still screw up around. I can go on and on, but I used to do a lot of training with this and and use golf as a type of metaphor for, uh, for discipline, self-control and all that stuff. One of the biggest metaphors, especially to investment in, in being successful in your own investing is course management. I mean, you get out there and if you shoot 90 or hundred, you know, and that's, that's as good as you think you're going to be. If you just simply make better choices, of what club to hit, where to play your ball. Do I go after the pin or do I just get it on the green? You know, if you just manage the course better, uh, you're likely to uh, get a better score. I think there's a couple of major pros that have some cool stories about this working with different players. You know, I think that that translates into the investment world. You know, we need to know what's available to us, different options, different products, and manage the ones that are available. You know, where, where do we put our money? Why do we put it there? Is it going into bonds, stocks, public assets, private assets, alternatives? Am I betting on DraftKings for the next guy that's going to win the NBA finals? That's all a part of where we spend our money, how we manage our money. Same thing, course management. It's uh, investment management. We all do it daily. Do you play much now still to get the chance to get out and get a quick nine? Are you that guy? when you are building a startup like this, it's, it's very difficult, uh, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to, to get out and play a quick nine, let alone 18, you know, I take opportunities when I have them, but most of the time we are grinding 14, 18 hours a day, you know, we'll turn on the TV at night, but we're still working. We're working all the time. So I I'm lucky if I get out to the course, I really love it, but the, the company takes priority right now, especially when you're solving a, a big problem. It's one thing to do a startup. It's another thing to, really, truly change the way that people invest in the way that the financial system works uh, behind the scenes of our app, um, you know, making it more efficient. You know, if we were just simply bringing you a new offering, that would be one thing. If we were actually bringing you a new offering with all the technology we're building from scratch on the bottom and all the partners we're using to bring it to, uh, to market, uh, you know, that's a whole different level. Um, you know, we're challenging the status quo and what, what people have uh, done in the past, what the regulators have said you can and can't do. Uh, and we're finding a way to bring it to the public. And that's, you know, that takes a lot of time. And, uh, I wish, uh, if, I, I hope that I have that much time in the future when I do, uh, have kids, but <laughs> right now this is, that's the life. So. And what is your experience with startups? I mean, you've been the head of a number of organizations, but as far as preparing for this startup, had you had much experience with startups before? And what about this particular experience is, uh, is different? You know, this is actually my third company, but prior to building some of those, I also did investment management for quite a few individual wealthy guys that were making a lot of 
venture investments, sort of like angel type investments into a lot of different companies and everything from NASCAR teams to very interesting little companies. One of them was in blockchain. That was one of my first introductions into the space, actually. And my job was not just to manage their investment, but specifically to come in and see where they put their money, talk to the teams, work with the teams to make those investments successful. Because uh, oftentimes the guys that were placing this money, uh, you know, they were having fun. They met people and they got convinced to do a thing. And, you know, they didn't know if it was going to be successful or not. And then, you know, six months later, they turn around and they go, uh, where, so where are we at with this thing that I gave you a million bucks for? Uh, <laughs> so I've had a quite a bit of experience on the startup side, both internally and, and externally, you know, helping people, you know, turn around investments or grow them or literally just sometimes in analyzing them and turning them around. We worked with some guys that were doing a lot of these EB5 projects, which is foreign investment into you know, U.S. companies to create more or less jobs in exchange for green cards. It's a very interesting world. A lot of those companies that they were investing in were things that I had to sink my teeth into, help them build business plans and explain what these investments were and help raise that money, which to be honest, as much as startups are about building and innovating, they're mostly about raising money. You know, when you're, when you're trying to break through into a, into a market, you're raising money and you're constantly at war with something whether it's acquiring users or changing some sort of paradigm or building something new. So, and you have a background in wealth management and building wealth, encouraging people to invest and have more at the end of the day than when you began. And that, that was what we talked about when we, when, when day trading was a big thing. The whole point is it doesn't matter how much you make, just make and recognize that there is a discipline that you can learn initially so that you make incrementally and then, you know, once you have a strong sense of the rules, you can learn how to bend them or you can learn how to be a bit more aggressive and recognize an opportunity when you see one. And um, when that translates to this business, I'm really curious about, I mean, given the skill sets that you've amassed over the years, this seems like the inevitable apotheosis of those trajectories so when the time came to put together, acquire, invest, and put this app together, what was the inspiration and what did you do first? It definitely is a culmination of all of the previous experiences I've had. Every other company we built, whether it was you know, in insurance or whether it was you know, in media and entertainment space today, or whether we're helping others uh, solve their problems or build an attractive package for investors doing due diligence on those investments, all of that comes together to build the app that I see today. It's the app that I wish I had back then. It's really just the ability to see the data, see the investments, have access to deals that you may not be able to find unless you happen to know a guy. <laughs> you know, th these are all problems that every accredited investor and definitely retail investors have. And I saw those back in the day. I didn't really know what how to solve them then. You know, I just kind of played within the lines and over time, I started working with a guy and he wanted to build this blockchain token to mine asteroids in outer space. It was wild. It started making me ask some questions. I said, look, like, can, can we not just use the same technology to solve some of the problems that we see in the private placement world? And one of those major one is liquidity. Liquidity comes from participants. And right now the participants are pretty much the top 13% of people in the world and specifically geo-fenced. So if, if it's an offering in the US, then it's probably only the top five or 10% of 
in the US and of those that can actually even discover and see that asset, they may be able to get in or they may not be able to get in because it's what they call illiquid. It doesn't have a secondary market for trading. So I said, why don't we just bring this to the public? So then you get into rules and regulations and you try to see when you file this with the SEC, how can you engage retail investors? What are the rules around that? Uh, you know, What are the dis disclosures that assets have to go through when they're filing and the, and the costs associated with bringing an asset live to a retail environment to a larger amount of people? So when I was asking these questions, I was getting a lot of negative feedback. And this was back in 2017. They said, well, no, blockchain is supposed to get around all of this. You know, and that was the ICO craze. If you guys don't know what the ICO craze was, it was basically a bunch of unregistered securities offerings where people are raising money as the Wild West. And a lot of them got enforcement actions brought against them and had to retroactively file with the SEC or return money or, you know, any sort of ways of remediating that situation. And it turned out I was, I guess I was right. You know, we needed to be pushing a programmatic solution that worked with the regulations. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't worked on all these other things you know, and been asking these questions, trying to solve these problems, beating my head against the wall when we're trying to raise money for different offerings from a very select group of people. And I couldn't go out to 100,000 retail investors. So that, I guess that's the long answer to your question. When you talk about this equity raise and bringing people on board, how much of the, uh, the equity raise do you think needs to be reserved for some level of education so that retail investors who are less aware of what a smart share is would grasp what that is. And while we're talking about that, let's talk about how a share, a regular share in a company and a smart share at least are related in that the market decides how much they're worth. And how similar is trading in smart shares to trading in shares? You've got a couple layers there. We probably should break that down a little bit. There's shares. Shares are publicly traded typically on the stock market. You also may own shares if you're a private investor. You might watch Shark Tank, right? And they said, I'll take 20% of your company uh, for 5 million bucks. You know, Congratulations, you have a market cap. <laughs> right, yeah. So they, they now have put a value on that company and that product. And they've said that they will buy 20%. 20% might, it might be of 10 million shares. So they now own 2 million shares. On the public stock market or Robinhood or whatever app you're getting on to interact with these public assets, you know, you're buying shares or fractional shares you know, parts of a single share. There are liquid markets, right? That means there's always a counterparty or a market maker sitting in between that's able to, you know, fulfill those trades on behalf of a future other counterparty. So when we talk about a smart share, it is the same thing. Legally speaking, it is a share. When you look at a safe note or a convertible note or ownership interest in any underlying investment offering, you know, a smart share just is a share. The difference is that we are programming this share, right? It lives on the blockchain. We're giving it, you know, superpowers, right? We're, we're telling it, look, you can embed rules, regulations. You can automatically enforce who can or cannot interact with this share, whether it can be traded or can't be traded, because there are a lot of rules. There's regulations that the SEC puts in place for interacting with these investments. And, you know, that's a barrier to entry for, smaller comp companies that are looking to raise money from the public when they want to take it out to 100,000 people and say, hey, I want to engage my audience. I want them to own a piece of my company. They have to now comply with 
rules and regulations. And by embedding those into what we call the smart share, it allows them to do it in a more programmatic fashion, an automated fashion. And, you know, that does save them a lot of time and effort and, and ultimately money. You get better data fidelity as well, information on what that token is doing. There's something called a transfer agent that sits in the middle of these transactions. And this is a crucial part of the transfer agent as well. It can help record the record of ownership live. And ultimately this will turn around uh, and provide investors and markets better information. Instead of waiting for quarterly earnings, you might be getting them monthly or weekly. Or constantly. You can get them near <laughs> real time. That's right. You know, so you, you may also have heard about tokens. Tokens are, whether you're- They're not about fungible as I, as I understand. Yeah, some, some of them, <laughs> right? Some, some of them actually are designed to be fungible. Oh man, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, like we're not going to dive into this explanation because there is a lot of depth to tokens. That's why they call it a token, right? Because it can have so many different definitions. That's why we've deemed ours a smart share because they are shares. It's a simple, easy to understand thing, right? It's smarter than your average share. But tokens- you Might have uh, a copyright issue with that, but uh, we'll, <laughs> I'll leave it in for now. Right. So, you know, you, you have Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, all these different cryptocurrencies. Those are tokens and they are fungible because they are being moved from one place to another in kind of transform. Non-fungible tokens are unique in and of themselves. Bitcoin's mostly non-fungible uh, yeah. in, in many cases as well, but there's just so many applications for it. We just decided to take a more traditional route, interact with the traditional markets, traditional assets, and bridge them into the Web3 space. When you talk about the compliance that you want to make sure you're keeping to, what sort of compliance issues uh, are in place now? And how do you see that uh, compliance evolving over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Look, governments don't really move fast. So when we say rapid, it's all relative, right? Um, <laughs> rapid so- like a glacier. Yeah. I mean, look, they're moving faster than we've really ever seen them move in this world because they realize that, look, the technology is here. It's not going away. It's changing the way people interact. There's a massive demand and it's going on with or without them. They've taken note. They put Gary Gensler in as the chairman of this SEC, who has been really hardcore about- He's a sheriff, isn't he? Yeah. He's a new uh, sheriff in town for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what he's doing will legitimize- cryptocurrencies to a certain extent, you know, it's going to result in a definition of what you can and can't do with different types of tokens, which we have lacked for the last, you know, five, 10 years on where do, where does this fall? How are they taxed? Right now, what we're doing is very clearly a security. So just to differentiate this, there is a lot of rules and regulations floating around when it comes to cryptocurrencies and different applications that the blockchain utilizes. What we're doing is very clearly a security, and there's very clear rule sets around that. To uh, give you an idea, there's 180 jurisdictions that are coded into these smart shares globally. And you know we can turn on and off those at will based on which offering is going out to which jurisdiction and how they were filed in that jurisdiction, right? So I may be raising money for an energy company or an individual asset in India, and I want to comply with their local rules and regulations. We're primarily focused on the US though. We have aspirations of global 
domination, but uh, you know, <laughs> for the for the there's short, your tagline. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, for the short term, we're looking at at the U.S. only. I mean, this is this is the most highly regulated market, and by bringing our offering here and, and being successful here, I think that it's very easy to move elsewhere. So for those of you who are listening to the podcast, Brian is currently petting a white Persian cat and uh, is named his company because he wants to acquire the world and perhaps oh, aim a, a laser it. beam at James Bond's crotch. Um, yeah. <laughs> little, that was an Inspector Gadget reference right there. That Well, that was a, yeah, but before that, it was a Goldfinger mm. reference. And uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, pseudo evil villain. Yeah. So when you talk about regulations and all the transparency that blockchain needs to provide to investors of every stripe, what's to keep blockchain and what's to keep cryptocurrency from becoming what it hates? Because if something becomes overregulated and safe, all the libertarians who love Bitcoin for the freedom it supposedly imbues and affords, um, what's to keep cryptocurrency from becoming just currency? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this from a different angle here. I think that the U.S. has been the home of innovation for decades. We've started to slip on that front. And I think that our politicians know this, our regulators know this, and they're trying to maintain our position as a global innovation hub. We want people to build here. We want them to come here. And we want to be the home of great technology. You know, we don't want to be afraid of what the next step could be just because we don't want things to change, right? We're, we don't want the status quo to change. Now, if, if it is better, faster, cheaper, easier, you know, I think that that speaks for itself. And, and there is user demand over the last you know, 10, 12 years here. We've seen these currencies grow rapidly. So how, how are the regulators going to work with this? You know, they're going to focus on investor protections like they always do. They're not going to tell us what we can't do unless it hurts participants, right? Yes, they'll probably protect their interests to a certain extent, you know, the US dollar and so on and so forth. But, you know, ultimately, I think that they are seeking a way to allow cryptocurrencies to have the technology and the benefits that that, that comes with that technology, but at the same time, account for the regulation and account for investor protection. And they've waited a long time to define this because look, it's not an easy question. It's a very hard thing to, to uh, balance. And, and that they have been thoughtful in balancing that. We've had a lot of great debate on both ends. You know, there's a lot of great support in Congress and the Senate and, you know, in the regulation, regulators themselves and the CFTC and the SEC and the other various regulators that are involved here. But I don't think that we're going to be worried about crypto ceasing to be crypto, because if it doesn't come here to the United States, it's going to be doing the same thing that it's always been doing in another country. And that's something that our country would not love. You know, <laughs> we want to see that wealth, you know, accrue here. And we want to see fostering that of that innovation here. And if we make the wrong decision, you know, it will go elsewhere. And I think that that's just the market speaking. Especially, and when that market becomes that much more automated, you get a lot more volatility in terms of people either jumping on a high or jumping off a low. And recognizing, I mean, I look at this and I'm looking at this from the lens of when I worked at Citigroup and I was in equity research, it was to keep regular investors from deciding to analyze Bitcoin in terms of, you know, maybe structural analysis and histograms and touching 52 week lows and 
it becomes a, a regular investment vehicle that people get paid a lot of money to predict where it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot of technical analysis going on around different currencies or just different markets in general, alternative markets, this, these new collectible markets, NFTs even have an analysis going on around them. It, that that really hasn't changed, whether it's the stock market or or Bitcoin. I mean, some technical analysts look at it and say, I can't figure this thing out, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and they've been doing it for 20 years. It's because they're so used to a specific type of asset class and what makes that asset class tick because it's been around for 70 years, 100 years. There's very predictable elements in those. And this is a new technology. And like anything that's new, there is some unpredictable elements to it. And those are becoming more and more predictable as time goes on because we're understanding the variables that are part of that market. You know, you've got amazing data, data that we've never seen in stock markets coming out of these currency markets. And, you know, with a smart share, what we're doing in Acquire, I think you're going to have kind of a little bit of a bridge there. People are going to apply more traditional analysis to these more traditional private placement alternative assets that are trading in a secondary market. But now you have data that's more rich and transparent and live. And let's talk about the app, which you say is you're, it's going to have a full rollout by Q4 this year. The, it's in, it'll be in beta at that point. Is that right? Yeah, we're hoping that we are really successful at our current public campaign. It's the first time we've brought what we're doing out to the public. And uh, you know we're trying to collect users and funds to prove that this is something that people want. This is a demanded item. And if we are successful at that, yeah, I think we'll stay on schedule and release a beta version of this app to our early supporters, early investors, people that sign up for that early access whitelist through our website or through that, that WeFunder page or our security token offering that will be coming out later this year. But it kind of takes everybody that's listened to this and everybody else that we're marketing to right now to, to help us get there. So Right. And as you build that user base, what will people experience when they're on the app and how they can how they can learn how to use it and learn what its power is in terms of, as you say, letting retail investors into the more rarefied air that the accredited investors so far have only just inhabited. Yeah. I mean, look, you're going to discover invest and trade, you know, I mean, it's, it's like any other app that you get out on, you know, Robin hood or whatever. The difference mm -hmm. is that you're discovering private assets that typically were only accessible to accredited investors, unless you happen to know a guy and he let you in for some reason. And the Facebook a, IPO, are, stuff like that. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. Yeah. I mean, there's pre-IPO things, but most pre-IPO companies that are marketed, you have to be accredited, you mm -hmm. know, and you have to drop a check size of 20000 or $50,000 to be a part of those pre-IPOs. You know, what we're doing is a little bit different. You know, we're looking at individual deals or private funds, and we want to tokenize these funds, turn them into smart share offerings on the app that users can discover, right? And eventually they can trade those as well, depending on what the uh, the regulation that they filed under says, how much their lockup period is. It may, you may have to hold it for six months and then it starts trading on the secondary market. So can you just decide to tokenize anything you want and, and make it a tradable asset? Sort of, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. We don't tokenize our own offerings. We will be tokenizing our own shares. So if mm -hmm. you are an investor, you will own a piece of our company in a smart share version. What we do is we go in to talk to issuers that have great assets. We go through a due diligence process, a quantitative analysis, a qualitative analysis of the offering that they're bringing to the table, whether it is seeking new capital or whether they're selling off cash flow of an existing business. 
they might be offering equity or debt. Uh, we look for great deals that are out there, just like any venture firm does. We work with venture capital groups, private equity groups as well, and individual CEOs, company leaders to, to bring these to market. You know, we're, we're hoping to have about five in the beta app, but ultimately the issuer has to make a decision to make this available to the public, which means we have to go through some processes, certain types of filings with the SEC to bring that to a retail investor. So we're doing a lot of work on the back end to make it super simple and accessible for you on the front end. You know, we're trying to find people that are, and convince them and say, look, you need to connect to your audience. You should raise money from the retail investor, right? And you shouldn't have to collect only checks that are 20,000, right? What if this guy wants to put in 500 bucks or a thousand, right? They set a minimum, they bring the barrier of entry down through our app. And hopefully that results in a more liquid environment for those assets. So those accredited investors that are used to putting in 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 and holding it for five years till they get a return. You know, if they have an issue and they need to get out, it's very unlikely that they can. And if they do, it's probably at a massive discount. They call it the illiquidity discount where another accredited investor wants to take advantage of that accredited investor who just has to get his money out. He might say, I'll take your $200,000 investment off the table at, you know, 150. And those are, those marketplaces don't really exist either. Um, yeah. People are just making a lot of money selling off each other's debt. Look there. It's like, it's like the collectible marketplace these days. You see collectible.com and masterworks and rally road, and they're bringing you baseball cards, you know, cool cars, you know, appreciating art, things that are really cool. And they're great assets, many of them, but uh, those were illiquid, right? You couldn't really, you know, you pretty much owned it. It's like, I'm rich. I owned a two million, I owned a $2 million car. I, I'm not personally rich, but you know, it's like, not yet. It's like if, if I was that guy, <laughs> I was the only owner of this car. Yeah. Uh, but now what they've done is they said, look, we can take in 10,000 owners of this car and you can put in a small amount of money and then you can trade that on a secondary market as it appreciates in value. You know, so they took an illiquid asset, they made it liquid by giving you trading of a secondary market. And we're doing the same thing, except we're not doing it with collectibles. You know, we're doing it with traditional real assets, real companies, things that you can own equity in, things that might change the way that you interact with something in your daily life. But in terms of assessing the value of them, there are no traditional fundamentals to rely on. So what criteria do investors rely on and other than their own instinct as to how much something is worth? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, look, depends on the level of the offering. These can be currently running businesses that are valuing themselves based on their current revenue stream. They may be selling off their cash flow in which case that's how you value it. And we would put up very simple, specific data into the app. It's not very hard for the average person to understand. Uh, for us, we're consumer obsessed. Like we look at this and say, if I'm the average person, if I have my mom download this, can she run through this app and say, I actually think this is a good deal? Or that would be a great can, litmus test, wouldn't right? it? If you can get your mom on board, man, you are, you're in the pink. Yeah. I mean, look, that is kind of the, the test. It's the cocktail napkin test, right? Um, <laughs> Valuing other types of assets that aren't currently building, you know, if it's a, a new company like ours, for example, we are a new company. We are growing hopefully pretty, pretty fast over the next couple of months. Uh, you can value us based on the technology, based on the market that we're approaching. Our, ours in particular, we're looking at $80 trillion worth of assets that could be tokenized. You know, what portion of that do you believe is going to be accessible to us as a market share? 
Well, what potential, what percentage do you think is going to be accessible to you? Let's, let's ask the guy in charge. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, look, I, I did a very simple math on this. I said, I can do, we'll be a billion dollar company because it's $80 trillion of assets, you know, and if we capture one one thousandth of a percent of this entire market, you know, we're looking at some pretty major dollars and that's, that's asset flow, you know, in terms of, of our valuation, let me just give you a, a, a comparison here. We talked about collectible markets a minute ago. Masterworks is a cool company. You know, they have a secondary market for a lot of their assets. They're doing art primarily. Uh, they have 190,000 users last time we checked and they're valued at a billion dollars. So that statistic alone shows me that, you know, there is a massive trend towards this type of offering because investors are looking for alternative places to invest. If they're investing in art, if they're investing in cars, if they're investing in, you know, cryptocurrencies and NFTs, it's because they don't have access to other types of alternative investments. And that's what we are focused on bringing to the market. And let's talk about that. Let's break down the revenue projections. Speaking of how you're going to get that one thousandth of a percent of an $80 trillion market, it's largely an awareness campaign at this point, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, people don't even know that they couldn't invest in this, right? The regular right. average retail investor, you know, once you make them aware that they can't, now they say, well, why can't I do that, right? You know, why can't I invest in the same thing that that guy can invest in? Now, now awareness is there. So we're doing that three to 5,000 people beta app, you know, is our, our kind of goal. Now, by mid to end of next year, you know, probably about Q3, we're targeting 50,000 users. You know, I think that between the 50 and 80,000 user mark, you know, we're going to have pretty good revenue, you know, something that can be about self-sustaining for us, you know. Now, is that based on commissions, revenue. advertising? Where does that revenue come from? Yeah, great question. So we're looking at a couple of different levels. We're helping a, an asset raise money. There's capital raise fees. Broker dealers charge fees. We funder charges fees. Any crowd equity charges fees as you're raising money because they're a portal and we are a portal to connect a, a user to an offering and that, uh, that offering needs some capital to grow. The other one is you know we, dividend management fees. So you know, typically over the process of a company being successful, they may have dividend issuance events, especially if it's a company we tokenize that's currently operating, maybe sending cash flow out to their companies via the this, this smart shares. You know, their earnings may have been great this quarter, so they're sending out a little bit to their investors. So we actually charge a small percentage because the technology we use actually streamlines and automates the process of, you know, sending those returns back to the investor. You know, there's also a pretty small trade fee. You know, it's in line with market standards. All of these fees are in line or undercutting market standards because, you know, we're, you look at Coinbase, they're bringing you an alternative asset class, but they are charging you a trade fee. It's very different than the public markets in, in that fact, because they are different assets. It's a different market depth, different number of users, different return profiles, uh, different costs to bring it to market. Uh, now, we hope that uh, what people do is get into assets that they want to see succeed and that, that, that they'll hold that because they see that this asset has the potential of growth because mm -hmm. this asset class in general, it happens before you go public. Right. So if you're public, you're probably a company that is hundred X, you know, you, you started at what million dollars. Now you're worth a billion dollars or $10 billion. And uh, here we want to get people in at a company that's at that million dollar level because they haven't had the ability, the ability to do that demand and real value on an asset that hasn't 
hit a public, uh, a, a massive, you know, multiple yet. And let's, as we finish up here, I wanted to, I mean, the, the last question we have in terms of, you know, creating value for investors is what kind of exit strategy you might envision. You look at iconic brands back in the day. I mean, Schwab set a new standard and was acquired. E-Trade set a new standard that was acquired. Is Acquire Invest and the Acquire app, do you think that could achieve that level of, of status and then be a part of a larger financial institution, which might lend more credibility to the intangible nature of Bitcoin and of cryptocurrency. What are your top drawer aspirations for Acquire Invest down the road? Institutions or larger um, you know, banks or venture capital firms, uh, like people like Alliance Bernstein and JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and all these groups, you know, they do make investments into early stage companies like ours at typically a series A uh, or later. Uh, we're obviously in a seed round, but once that happens, you know there is validation there, right? And sure, they typically yeah. make those investments in a, in an attempt to either utilize that technology or potentially acquire that technology in the future. So yes, there is potential for those exits in the future. We don't know which one we will align with and what strategy we will take. Because when you think about building something, you don't necessarily say my goal is to be acquired. Uh, not when you're disrupting the people that may acquiring. Acquire right? <laughs> well, they um, might just buy you just to have you stop disrupting them. <laughs> right. So you got to you have to make good decisions. You have to align with good venture capital firms and you know good good potential acquisition partners that can provide you business lines that can help you grow your revenue and grow the assets on platform and the user base and the legitimacy and all of those things. You know. So yes, I think we could get acquired. I think we could go public. You know, it's it's one of the two things. It all the all depends on how successful we are over the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. It's not a matter of if it's happening at the institutional level. Goldman Sachs has their own thing. JP Morgan has their own thing. Wisdom Tree's got partners. State Street has partners. U.S. Bank. The list is ridiculously long at this point. So for us, it's just a matter of building a great product that can, you know, disrupt and add value to a big organization. And then we, we cross that road when we come to it, right? Yes, and adding to Nashville's brand as a global financial hub. So come for the Bitcoin and stay for the Grand Old Opry and the Parthenon. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brian, it's been great to talk to you about this. We could talk, I could talk for another several hours about this just because this is a vast new frontier. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about Acquire Invest. And I will be watching out for when the app drops. I'll be looking for you to publish your, your list of active users. And I hope somewhere in there is Brian's mom. I mean, look, I'll believe it when, when her numbers show up as uh, daily active you know, yes. uh, users instead of just an email and an account sitting on a database somewhere. Uh, yes, mom, please feel free to build my inheritance. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, absolutely. If you are interested in more about this, jump onto our website, acquireinvest.com. The WeFunder page is live. WeFunder backslash Acquire Invest. And you know, we've got Twitter and Medium and all that stuff is linked to on our website. Lots of content's coming out daily. So jump in. Thanks again. And uh, thank you for listening to episode 239 of the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech. I have been Doug French. That has been Brian Harstein. And we will see you next week with another story of investors venturing off into the new frontier and hoping to get in a golf game periodically. Brian, thanks. Thanks, Doug. See you guys. Okay, guys. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.